0: Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. And thank you for not walking out on that very long reading. Try not to do that, but there's so much going on in this story, it's just one of those stories you kind of have to let it unfold. So thank you for hanging in there. But I want to catch you up where we continue in our series on Lent as we continue to make our way through Lent. And if you haven't caught the last couple sermons, what we've been talking about is looking at Lent through the lens of sort of the ancient church. That Lent originally was a time of preparation for those who were about to be baptized, And so baptism would always happen on Easter. That makes all the sense in the world. And so they would spend the time before that getting themselves ready and thinking deeply about what it meant to follow after Jesus Christ. Eventually, the ancient church said, you know what, if it's good for them, it's good for all of us. And this is where we sort of get the initiation of this season of Lent, 40 days where we prepare ourselves to follow after Jesus anew. And the readings really are about this journey. We started with the first reading that Jesus is baptized and then he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. Guess what? Being a Christian doesn't keep you from temptation. In some ways, it intensifies it. Be ready for that. Last week, we looked at Jesus and him hanging out with Nicodemus. And baptism is not just, well, you know, we'll just kind of patch up the pieces of you. Jesus tells Nicodemus, you got to take your life from the top. It's a starting over. You must be born again. So this is the sort of the, the spirit in which we attack this reading today. And put yourself in the seat of those who were originally about to be baptized. Remember way back in the day that being baptized wasn't just a thing you did because you wanted to join a church. That in the days of Rome, to be baptized was to put a target on your very own back. And we just, I just talked to the confirmands this week. They'll tell you. The early Christian church went through a remarkable amount of persecution. Horrible things and nevertheless people were coming to be baptized because following after Jesus mattered to them. And so when you're baptized you step out of that world right? We step out of all this and we're excited to step into the church. They would have been so fired up to know that they're a part of this community that's following after Jesus Christ with all their hearts. And when you're baptized you say hey I have a place in this community now, this growing community of faith. I belong here. There's something beautiful and wonderful about that, right? Baptism brings us to a place of belonging. The Apostle Paul talks about this. In the letter to the Ephesians, he says, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. He says, each of us are a stone being built into this beautiful, wonderful house, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, this beautiful, mystical, wonderful thing that we call the church. And isn't indeed a great comfort to be part of something? Have you ever been brought into something? You're just like, oh, it feels great to be a part. If for no, I was thinking about it myself, and like I just started watching English Premier League soccer like a couple years ago. I was like, because it comes on on Saturday mornings. I'm like, this is fabulous. I get sports. It's like Saturday morning cartoons with a ball. I love it. And so I'm like jumping in, and first thing I do is I go on Twitter and I find all the Southampton fans. Go Saints. They play at St. Mary's, by the way. Like, that helped a little bit. That's the name of their stadium. But anyway, and I'm like, I'm a part of this conversation. I get to be a part. This is fun. I'm some kid in Maryland, but I get to be a part of this. Being a part is wonderful. It's because we long for connection. We long for belonging. We long for shared mission, that we're doing something. And indeed, we recognize that our lives have meaning as we are in relationship to something bigger than ourselves and connected to people beyond ourselves. We want to belong. And that's a powerful and beautiful thing that the church does. But there's a danger in that, right? If we're honest about this, there's a little bit of a danger. Because when we create an us, we also create a them. You just sit with that for a second. When we create an us, we also create a them. We do this. Not because we are sinful, not because we're not following after Jesus or anything like that. Group dynamics are part of what it means to be human. We cannot escape this. And sometimes it is playful. I am a Southampton fan. I do not like Chelsea fans. And that's okay. Chelsea fans don't like me either. That's fine. It's playful. Until you get the Raven Steelers. Eh, maybe not quite as playful. But we do this, right? I root for a team, which means I don't root for this team. But we, we all can see, right, that group dynamics also sometimes call forth the very worst parts of what it means to be a human. That in us, means there's something wrong with the them. That we're opposed to the them in some capacity. And the church suffers from this in so many ways and has suffered for generations We acknowledge that entrance and participation in something is a beautiful thing, filled with relationships, challenges, opportunity to grow, and blessings. To call this an us is wonderful. But if we aren't careful, we risk in creating a them. And I've seen this happen in religious life, and you have seen it happen in religious life too. Sometimes it happens on a very big level. Bigotry and prejudice happen all the time. I've heard it, you know, our denomination versus their denomination. Our theology versus their theology. These kinds of Christians versus those kinds of Christians. But let's not fool ourselves. This is not only sort of big existential church things. This is local church stuff too, right? Can we be honest with ourselves? This Sunday school class versus that Sunday school class, new members and established members The people who side on this side of a vote and the people who are on this side of a vote. A little awkward in the room right now, but we all kind of know how this goes. It is natural for us to always be breaking things down into group dynamics. That is human. But the question for us as believers is, how do we handle this very human thing? How do we do us versus them? How do we navigate this basic human instinct, which, by the way, is vital to our survival? We need connection with others. What do we do? Well... We have today an example in the gospel that could hardly be more fitting. We have an us and we have a them. We have the Jews and we have the Samaritans. Now, there is little known about the Samaritans. So if you're like, "Ah, you know, I know about the good Samaritan. Well, the good Samaritan has meaning and value because nobody liked the Samaritans. It was an us versus them situation. We don't know much about them, but here's what we do know. We do know that the Samaritans believed that they, and not the Jews, were the proper inheritors of the Israelite faith. And as soon as you hear that, you're like, wow, this has applications for so many things in our own time. Who owns our ancient stuff was the question. Jews had one idea and Samaritans had another. The Samaritans believed that earlier generations had got it wrong, that they had corrupted what Moses had taught. They believed that Mount Gerizim, and you're like, where? Exactly. Mount Gerizim and not Jerusalem was the location of God's activity on earth. And they had enough differences in basic religious practices that they were easily annoyed by the other. You all experience this, right? Like people who have slightly different beliefs about something you share in common and the slightly different beliefs of somebody else just kind of gets under your skin. That's what was going on, except it was everything that got underneath each other's skin. They were like, well, here, this is how we practice cleanliness and No, this is how you should practice cleanliness and And on and on and on. It's this minutia, but it mattered. And there were some rumors of historical animus. There's a story this suggests that when Nehemiah came back to, re, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem after it had been totally destroyed to the ground, when the Jews say, we're going to build this back up, that it was the Samaritans that opposed them because, well, Jerusalem's not where God lives. You should just do it over here on Mount Gerizim. The relationship wasn't a full-blown boil. There was nothing that just lit it on fire. It was a slow simmer where it was very obvious. There is an us, and there is a them, and we do not like each other. We've all been there. So when Jesus, a Jewish man, meets a Samaritan woman at the well of their shared ancestor Jacob, we have all the tinder we need for a combustible mixture. But you heard the reading. It didn't turn out that way, did it? It didn't turn into this, we're right, no, we're right. Something very different happens. It acknowledged, but it never decayed into us versus them. It owned that there are differences, but that wasn't the point of the conversation. In fact, one thing led to another, and a life of an entire community was changed on that day. Because Jesus didn't get into the us versus them. Jesus transcended the difference. How? Well, allow me to trace some things for you this morning. The first thing that should blow us away, Jesus initiates the contact. Jesus starts, will you give me a drink? Can I have something to drink? Nothing more than that. But even in that, Jesus has broken about five social rules. Rules that we have, like you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics, you know, know, all these kind of things. Jesus breaks all those rules. He's like, would you give me a drink? He's not supposed to talk to the Samaritan, and he's certainly not supposed to talk to a woman. But he does. He initiates contact in a simple, non-confrontational way. Now the woman reacts exactly as we would expect her to react. What are you doing? Like, bro, get it. No. She does exactly what she's supposed to. We're meant to feel that tension to the point that John emphasizes for us in little parentheses, I love this, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. He's trying to drive a stake in this. This is not right or proper or good. But Jesus initiates contact. He seeks a conversation with her. He wants to dialogue. He's not scared. He's not concerned. He's not meek. Nor does he seem to give much of a hoot for social conventions Because Jesus and those who follow him shall not be bound by us versus them. It's okay to talk to people who are different than us. Indeed, it is essential that we do so if we want to follow Jesus. Secondly, Jesus extends an offer this whole thing about living water. And Jesus addresses a felt need that she has, something that is common to them both. They're both thirsty. They both need water. The woman is running an errand. Jesus is on a journey. Now the woman is appropriately skeptical. I heard one preacher one time say, you ain't got no bucket. I've never forgotten that. But you ain't got a bucket. And fella, you're talking about all this living water. You might want to start with a bucket. That, which, by the way, is a very farmer thing to say. Great, you got the water. You can carry it. I don't think so. This woman's seen some things. She's done some things. She's probably got a little cynicism to go along with it. Good for her. Again, she's playing the role perfectly. She's playing the us versus them. She does not trust him. And when we descend to us versus them, this is precisely to the letter what we look like. We're like, well, you ain't got a bucket. He says, are you greater than our father Jacob? You think you're so special? But Jesus continues to speak with her and isn't put off by her barbs. Rather, he's understanding and compassionate. And he offers her in return a truth. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now he's got her attention because he's speaking about something that she cares about. She's speaking to something that she's feeling. Not just that she has come to the well because she's got errands to run. And if somebody told me, you drink this water, you never have to drink again, and that gets me out of hoofing buckets all the way back and forth, I'm down. I'm in for that, but Jesus isn't just talking about that. What Jesus is talking about is something much deeper than that, and this woman's got some stuff she's dealing with. We'll come to that, but when he says, I will give you water that will spring up in you to eternal life, Jesus is addressing something that's going on in her life, a felt need, a reality that she's carrying around. Clearly, Jesus is no longer using water as a liquid that quenches physical thirst, but he's speaking to something interior, getting to her heart, her motives, her passions. And in us versus them, we have got to give a hoot for our friends, motives, passions, and desires. We've got to be willing to hear them out. None of us are out to do evil in the world. All of us are out to do some kind of good in the world. We just don't always agree on how to get there, but hear that goodness, hear the hurt in someone else. Care about somebody else's inner reality as Jesus does. What makes her, her? And invite that person to something greater. Now to get there though requires some real conversations and it requires us to deal with some real stuff. And so Jesus said to her, go call your husband. And if it's weird to you that Jesus makes this shift from like I've got water to go call your spouse, it's kind of supposed to be weird. Jesus is like, like, whoa, wait a second, where did that come from? but what Jesus is doing, he's playing off an ancient motif. Put it this way, if I told you that I had a story I wanted to tell you about a pair of dudes who are friends who dress in tights and fight crime in New York City, you would wait for the reference to Batman, right? Unless you've got another story of two guys in tights, in which case I'm very curious as to what that story, how many guys are running around in tights in New York City? Probably a lot. (laughs) There's probably more than I think. But yeah, but when Jesus says, go call your husband, he is tapping into the tension that the reader would have heard because Jacob's well, the reason we call it Jacob's well is because Jacob's well is the place where Jacob met his wife, Rachel. It is supposed to be tense in that way. And the reader had been leaning in waiting. There's a guy and a girl at Jacob's well, something going down here. And Jesus finally gets to it. He addresses it. He said, go call your husband. And she shares what she is willing to share. I have no husband. I don't have anybody. He says, I've had, and that's it. And Jesus acknowledges that, and Jesus fleshes it out. He says, no, you've had five. Now, admittedly, when it comes to us versus them, we don't always know that information. That's fine. At this point, Jesus gets to be Jesus, and we just marvel at what he knows. He says, no, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're with now isn't your husband. Now, real quick let's step aside for a second and say please step away from misogyny in this passage for a second let's not do this this is the woman in this society would not have the power to divorce she is not a woman of ill repute she is not a woman who's just bouncing around trying to use guys to get what she wants that's not how this society worked so let's not judge her she's been used by others Women had no power to divorce. There's five guys who have taken her in, promised things, and then let her go. That's a woman with some baggage. Compassion and not judgment is how we need to approach this. This is not a blushing bride. This is a world-weary woman who has been abandoned five times and is now clinging to someone just trying to get by. One author put, for this woman, to be near a man is to be near danger. We need to take that seriously for her. But once we get our minds around that, we get to the next point. Now Jesus has opened her up and is engaging with her real life. She shared something really important. And Jesus is able to engage in that. Not in a threatening way, not in a judgmental way, not in a, hey, if she's vulnerable, I can use her for something. No, no, no. Jesus shows nothing but compassion. And when Jesus shows compassion, and this happens in us versus them, we get close we start having a conversation, and sometimes we get a little too close, right? You've had somebody get a little too close to what's going on inside of you? And so what she does is pull back. She's like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. We're, whoa, we're way down this road. I do not want to talk about my five husbands, so let's talk religion. Well, you Jews say you're supposed to worship over here, but we say you're supposed to worship over here. It's a total dodge. It's true, but it's a total dodge, she tries to go back to the original conversation, tries to lean back into us versus them. Why? Because us versus them is safe, it's defined and it's predictable. But Jesus refuses the invitation. He says, "No, no, no, no. No, no, no. It's not us versus them anymore. It's just us, a Jew and a Samaritan having a real conversation. Jesus says, "It's only of us and, and us." Jesus gives the good news. He says, we aren't separated. He said, forget your mountain, and I'll forget my mountain. He says, there is a time coming when we will all worship together. This is good news. Not winners and losers, but us together. He gives her a brand new vision of what the world can look like. And she expresses a deep hope that this is true. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. I've heard there's a Messiah coming. But you know what? I've been too busted up to care much. But I remember way back somewhere, somebody said there was a Messiah coming who would set everything right. And then Jesus drops the truth bomb, says, I, the one speaking to you, am He. And the conversation ends, but not the story. She goes back to her community and says, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And the people come out. And they said, We can't believe the story that you're telling us. And so the people come to Jesus. The Samaritans are seeking out this Jewish guy. Think about that. From where we started to where we are, the Samaritans are like, I cannot wait to hear from this guy. The us versus them is gone. There's only curiosity, there's only intrigue, there's only tell me more. And I love this line at the end. It's beautiful. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. They're not putting her down. We're just like, we have even more evidence. Now we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this man is the savior of the world. Do you understand what just happened? It's one of the greatest evangelistic moments in the entirety of our scriptures. Because Jesus transcended us versus them. Because Jesus initiated a conversation. He extended an offer of compassion. No strings. Just want to talk to you. Because Jesus had enough time to care for a Samaritan woman that he wasn't supposed to care for in the first place. He connected with what was really going on in her life. And he showed her a new way forward. It's not your way or my way. There's a new way coming. And the world for those Samaritans was changed forever. Do you understand that? Their world was changed forever. One might say, to pull from last week's language, they were born again. The living water Jesus talks about with this rural, rogue, world-weary woman is so many things. It brings about life change. It fulfills deep hope. It transforms communities. That's what Jesus is about. The message of Jesus wasn't to convert from one group to another, it wasn't to sort out whatever little petty thing, whoever we're fighting with about whatever it is, whether that's something you know here, which, and that's church life, I get it, or whether it's Democrats, Republicans, whether it's conservative, liberal, whether it's Americans versus the world, whatever it is, Jesus, that's not what he's here to do. It's not about converting from one to another. It's about restoration of relationships and a new way forward. God is restoring the Samaritans. He's not judging them. God is bringing us together, not forcing us to dig in in the name of faithfulness or some kind of religious or ideological purity. Jesus says, you all are wrong. In the best way, there's a new way coming. Come with me. Come with me. And that is the call for the church that is interested in following Jesus Christ. It is okay to be us. Let me say that very clearly. It's okay to be us. I want people going around saying, I really love my congregation, St. Mary. I love it. I want us to feel the us. But it's never just about us, it's always about transcending that us. And if it has to be in us, then it is always us for them, not against us for them. We come in this story face to face with a hard truth. Yes, us versus them is a basic human reality. Nevertheless, Christ compels us to transcend it in the name of compassion. We've got to be more than just regular humans. Welcome to following Jesus. Welcome to the cross. And so you, newly baptized person preparing for baptism, or you, the Lenten traveler, you are being brought into something new and special. But it's not for us, it's for all. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to us, and there is no them. And it compels us to learn how to live in a world where us versus them threatens us at every turn. As soon as you walk out the door, it's gonna be us versus them. Shoot, right now Southampton's playing Man United. All right, it's always gonna be us versus them. It's always always gonna be present, but it's always a threat. One we can't transcend if we follow in the way of Jesus. The life we share, the us we are, compels us to grow in our love for others and to offer good news as we can for the growth of others. Not for winning arguments, not for gaining control, not for trying to impose our will, but simply proclaiming, thy kingdom come and thy will be done.